Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trainway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trainway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Long Thread Media co-founder, Ann Marrow. Mary Jean Packer is the owner of Batten Kill Fibers, a spinning fiber and yarn mill in upstate New York. She's also the co-founder of the Hudson Valley Textile Project. Mary Jean, thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm delighted. So you're the owner of Battenkill Wool Mill. Is that right? Battenkill Fiber Mill? The legal name is Battenkill Fibers Carding and Spinning Mill. But everyone just says Battenkill Fibers. Or just plain old Battenkill. (laughs) Just plain, the way they say plain old Rhinebeck. Rhinebeck's actually a town on the Hudson River. And Battenkill is actually a river on the Hudson River. It's a tributary that goes into the Hudson in the town the mill is located in, Mm -hmm. called Greenwich, not Greenwich, New York. And I figured that was a good thing if people say Battenkill and they mean the mill, just like they say Rhinebeck and mean the festival. That's true. Now, speaking of rivers, in in that part of the country, there's this long tradition of textile mills, but a lot of them were massive and they had all kinds of different processes. What does Battenkill focus on? Well, let me just one more historical point on that. that yeah. Here in Greenwich, New York, water powered many mills. In fact, at one point there were 13 mills in our town, all running off the Battenkill River. Wow. And the one called Battenkill Fiber Mill Mm-hmm. Second time around, um, one of its first managers who lived here for a number of years um, with his family included his daughter who watched the girls. She was a littler girl, watched the big girls come to work in the mill and lose their fingers and so on. And so on. a lot of a lot of issues in the 1800s with textile mills. Yeah. And that little girl was Susan B. Anthony. Wow. Yeah, her dad was the manager of Battenkill Fiber Mill. They lived across the street from the mill, and the house is now protected by the New York State Department of Parks and Historic Preservation. It's such a rich, incredibly rich location for this sort of thing. So it's a part because of our place on the land that the whole story begins with water-powered many mills. Because none of this would have happened here had it not been for the geography. What sort of, you mentioned it's carding, what sort of fiber processing do you do there? So there's two overall ways that yarn is made. 
through the woolen system Mm -hmm. and through the worsted system. Within worsted, there's full worsted and there's semi-worsted. That's us, semi-worsted. The difference between full worsted and semi-worsted is a piece of equipment. And we actually have the piece of equipment and we stopped using it. It's um, a comber. So a full worsted system has in the middle of the process combed top. Um, We stopped making combed top in-house because of the tremendous loss. So much of the farm fiber we're able to bring in, either for brands that we spin for or the farmers that want it spun and returned to them, has issues. It, it comes in already pilled or it comes in with short pieces or tips that are fragile and may have snapped in carding. It comes in with quite a lot of vegetation. You couple all these things and you end up losing 30 or 40 percent in the comer. So somebody that thought they were going to get back 15 pounds a yard is surprised to find they've only gotten back nine or 10. And you multiply that on a bigger scale. So having realized that that aspect of the worsted system wasn't working, we decided to make a huge investment in our carter and have, we bought it at a carpet mill in Quebec in 2010. It was running wool nylon blend even then. And so it had a pretty wide space in the combs, in the, in the cloth on the carter, which is seven feet across times two main drums and four sets of workers and strippers in parallel with each drum. So we decided to have it all recovered, which was a $25,000, almost $30,000 investment, more than what we'd paid for the combing machine. (laughs) But having invested in that recovered properly for working with medium wools, Dorset, South Downs, Cheviot, Mm -hmm. things like that that are a little fragile on the tip, and can have second cuts or pills already with them, a lot of swift veg, that, that new spacing of the wire and the carter allowed a lot more things to go through without exacerbating the pills and also grabbed out more of the veg. So we've decided semi-worsted is just fine. and There's nothing wrong with being semi-worsted versus full-worsted if you can get more value for your customers in the semi-worsted process. It's a better fit when you take loss into the equation. I'm not sure that everybody realizes the different ways that a mill can specialize. You know, as a as a hand spinner, I sent a merino fleece once to a mill that in retrospect specializes in long wool and, you know, got back fiber that I wasn't maybe that excited about. And then there's folks who say, well, we can do over this staple length, or if it's this kind of fiber, we'll need to blend this with it. So it sounds like there are a lot of factors that go into that specialty. Oh, indeed. Indeed. Different wools definitely do better at one or another process. For example, alpaca, I wouldn't even try to send to a woolen mill or any really long, silky fiber, Gotland, Lincoln, Cotswold, Mohair, or at least not at any considerable proportion. Maybe if it was 20% Mohair and 80% Ramboulet, that would be great at a well mill. In fact, that's roughly what our friends at Green Mountain Spinnery in Putney, Vermont, 
make at their woolen mill one of my favorite knitting yarns, a nice lofty single ply mountain mohair, I think it's called. So it all depends on on what you want to make and and what proportions. But but long wools at a hundred percent at a woolen mill can end up becoming pretty short when they are prepared for spinning. Uh-huh. Because I don't think cut is the right word, but they're they're broken down into narrow strips and spun right from the narrow strip, which some people know as pencil roving. Yes. Whereas at a semi-worsted or worsted mill, we never break it that way. We just keep condensing and aligning. So there's never any cutting of the fibers here. And so scratchier, coarser, longer fibers, or just slippery fibers will never hold together and will be very scratchy if they're they're cut. But if they're combed and kept very smooth and silky, then they have a better chance of being a, a nice, soft, soft yarn. So this is a mill that you started in, is it 2009, in the mid-2000s? Did you learn all of this on the job or is it something that you studied separately? Well, a little of, of it all. I um, I have a degree in engineering and mm. I like how things work. I also am a former yarn store owner and a former consultant to the value-added agriculture industry. So I understood there were farmers who needed to make money off of their crop in some other way than selling the crop as just a commodity raw material. Mm-hmm. And I understood from owning a yarn store that there were people who desperately wanted to buy local things, but they wanted to know how many yards, they wanted it to to be pleasant to the touch, they wanted it to to be like yarn brand yarn. Right. They didn't want what was available on the market in the 2000s. Um, so the whole return of the yarn of the knitting craze after 9-11, everyone who ever had knit went back to knitting and all their sisters, friends, and whoever came back with them. So there was this knitting explosion. Fiber festivals took off, but the vendors in many cases were at the mercy of, of well-meaning mills who were not really equipped to run to scale farm-by-farm jobs. They would take in the wool from the farm and send them back yarn, but not their own yarn back, and it was sort of all the same. Right. (laughs) And so you were seeing the same yarn, kind of how you do now with indie dyers at all these shows, where booth after booth is the same base with Uh different colors added to it. Of course, as you can imagine, we're working with a lot of indie dyers who notice that too, who seek differentiation, also seek less miles on their materials, mm-hmm. seek to understand who are the, their suppliers. And COVID, sort of funny, isn't it? How 9-11 kicked off this whole interest in knitting and the solace it brought. And COVID really brought people to demand locally sourced things because they realized a supply chain that was reliant on sheep from one continent, mills in a second continent, and distributors in a third to the consumer in a fourth continent, that four continents worth of travel was not going to make it anymore. 
And you mentioned that farmers were, you know, wanted to get back their own wool. You actually work on, in some cases, on like a scale as small as an individual fleece. Like I've sent you a fleece and I got back my fleece. (laughs) (laughs) Because you got back, you got it back is pin drafted roving. Right. We do draw the line at spinning and the minimum is 45 skeins. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just because our spinners are are huge and geared to run only one job at a time because that's where we set the weight of the singles on the yard. So each draft setup, draft setup, how much it's drafted before it's spun, that is the whole machine has to go that way. And we do have two spinners, but even so, we can't just run on a spindle or two for one fleece. We really need to be running on about 20 spindles on our smaller machine to be even vaguely economical. <laughs> I'm thinking of one lock on each, <laughs> each <Yes>. bobbin. <laughs> Which is a whole nother problem <laughs> that we can cover whenever we want, or you can edit this out, but it's a fascination of mine that people with relatively coarse fiber, mm-hmm. um, let's just say a a border Lester or a Lester long wool, and they want something spun so thin and so fine that it's actually the micron of the yarn they want is less than the micron of the wool they sent. <laughs> and as anyone who's hand spun at all know you need a few fibers mm-hmm. overlapping in weird ways mm-hmm. in order to hold together when you do draft it. Yeah. Do you work with a lot of hand spinners or is it something where if somebody finds you at a show and gives you a fleece? Because a lot of what we're talking about is about yarn production, but I know that you do process fiber for spinning as well. I I would say maybe 10 or 15% of our customers are either hand spinners or farmers who have a market to hand Mm -hmm. spinners and have reached the point where it's too much to buy the fleeces or raise the fleeces and process all of that at home. And a lot of people have drum carters, but, you know, they're not as consistent. Mm-hmm. And um, I think especially since 9-11, when people bought whole fleeces and did the whole thing, not 9-11, COVID, bought whole fleeces and did everything at home, to now they're back doing things out of the home again and on right. back to work more. And they don't have time to start at the very beginning, but they still so enjoyed the feeling of hand spinning that they are now eager to have a pin drafted roving that just coils nicely out of the bag. They can oh. they can watch TV and spin at the same time. The pictures of the pin drafted roving in those bins are just so lovely. You know, you mentioned kind of what made you understand that there was a need for a mill. What made you decide that this was something that you wanted to take on? I think I've known I wanted to do this since the uh, since Green Mountain Spinnery opened 43 mm-hmm. years ago. I was on maternity leave from my real job with my son Richard, who's now 43, <laughs> and he and I saw, in the, that's when you got a daily paper still. Yeah. And I was living in Southern Vermont. The Rutland paper business section had a story about Green Mountain Spinnery opening in an old gas station in Putney, Vermont. So we hopped in our red Subaru and went to mm-hmm. Putney, Vermont. 
and had a look at it. And I guess just right then and there, I decided I wanted to do something like that someday. But I ended up having a total of five kids. And it was only when numbers four and five, who were twins, went to college in 2009 that I had the time again to devote to something like this. It started with this trip to Green Mountain Spinnery in the Red Subaru in 1980 when Richard was, you know, we were home on maternity right. leave and yeah. it's, and has un, uh, unfurled to that. In my value-added consulting role, I called on rural communities all over North America. And so I had an opportunity to go places I might never have gone otherwise. And Everywhere I've gone, people have been so gracious to mm -hmm. me because we all know Green Mountain Spinnery, Bartlett Yarn, Zeilinger's Echo View, which mm -hmm. is no longer in business, and we actually have some of their equipment here. Taos Spinning Mill, also no longer in business. No, none of their equipment here. But anyhow, all these places I went for my work, my consulting work, same towns, even then, even though I didn't have a mill yet, they understood when I said, you know, someday I'm going to do this. I would really love to do this. Generally, when you say that, they say, oh, do you want to buy this one? <laughs> yes, I've noticed that. <laughs> and that did kind of give me a little pause. And now I, too, say it when people come in and say, oh, I just love what you're doing. Do you want to? Well, I'd love to do this someday. And I always offer offer it to, to them. Mm -hmm. Now and then we've had some takers mm -hmm. more as interns. Our our biggest success story is Sarah from, from Mendo Wool in Mendocino oh, County, yes, California. Mm -hmm. She spent two weeks with us. Mm -hmm. And um, we really did help help her. I hope we helped her. It seems like we have get started. And now we're, we're mentoring Liz at Kingdom Fleece and Fiber in the northern part of Vermont. It's interesting. There are a couple of, a couple of small mills. I know that there's Junction Fiber Mill kind of across the river and Green Mountain Spinnery. It seems like there really is kind of a community of people who do this very specialized work. We also, we have whole Facebook groups and we have resources among us small mills. And then we have a mill that I, I guess I'll just call like a sister mill um, that started at roughly the same time we did with a lot of the almost identical used equipment. So because we started at the same time, larger mills in South Carolina that were closing or modernizing had the same equipment for sale on the market at the same time. So we ended up with matching equipment, and that's Mountain Meadows in Buffalo, Wyoming. Of course, just a little bit north of me where I am in Colorado. Yes, yes. I would imagine that you probably get very different kinds of wool in these different <laughs> places. They get a lot of range wool. Yes, and that was um, when now it's um, Karen's son, Ben, who manages and owns it. But it was Karen and a partner who started it back in, in 08 or 09. And their goal was just like mine, never to become like a national brand, but mm -hmm. to just take the local wool and help people add some value to it. Right. And little did any of us know there was this this incredible demand mm -hmm. 
by the consumer for what it was we had to offer for the farmer. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, I've, there's a mill I know of, I think, of in Wisconsin, Blackberry Ridge Mill. Yes. And she's been wanting to sell for a really long time, which says to me that it's something that she doesn't want to die. She doesn't want to right. just walk away and let it go, even though she's ready to be done with it. We have a succession plan here mm-hmm. uh, because, well, I mentioned those five kids. They could keep it going if they needed to. Uh, one is an avid spinner and knitter. One is an artist and textile dyer. One is a shop teacher and can fix anything with metal. One is a is a house painter and very and a handyman, especially for a big old building. And one is a grant administrator. So my five could together run the mill with no trouble. But that's they live all over the country and that is of no interest to them. So I had a little health scare a couple of years ago, and two of my key employees were kind of thrust into having to make some day-to-day decisions while I went through my treatments. Mm -hmm. And while that was going on, they looked at one another and said, gosh, we could we could run this place. And (laughs) so they said to me, have you ever thought of taking partners? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, sort of. I (laughs) want a retirement strategy. But Mm -hmm. if to get to that, we need to develop a partnership in which they take on more responsibility each year for four or five years and my responsibility goes down, I'm fine with that. And so that's the process that we're we're in now, in fact. And um it's going going great. The people are fabulous and um very committed to our place on the land and the eighteen jobs that our mill provides to our friends and neighbors and the services it provides to the farmers in the Northeast. Talking about your your place in the community makes me think about another project that I know you're involved in, which is the Hudson Valley Textile Project. Can you tell me about that? Oh, I love talking about the Hudson Valley Textile Project. It all started because of lacking a community of the scale that it has become. The co-founder with me, Gail Paranello, owns a yarn shop Um, just outside of New York City. And she had carried a yarn that we made for a brand here at the mill. And she knew it was milled here because years ago, Vogue Knitting had done a a photo shoot, an article about us and making this custom blend yarn for a brand. So Gail had a bunch of store samples knit up and and her customers really loved it. It was a three-ply alpaca Coriadale blend all New York State sourced. And when our brand decided to discontinue that, they were actually bought by another brand. Anyhow, so the people we were making it for didn't need it anymore. Gail's customers still wanted it. So she called me up and said, did I have any extra? I said, I have a little odds and ends, but, you know, we could make you something. Well, Mm -hmm. no. And we talked through breed-specific, locally sourced, and how, how this all came to be. And within the year, we were saying, how can we bring to other people in the Hudson Valley the same experience she and I have just been through of identifying a need, finding collaborators, bringing an idea to market? How could we create a space, a community in which the the little small project that she and I worked on 
could happen hundreds or thousands of times. And that's when we decided we needed a networking event. We sent out personal invitations to 50 people. She got 25 names. I got 25 names. Interestingly, mm-hmm. hardly any overlaps in those days. Interesting, yeah. And we assumed 20 might come because mm-hmm. these weren't all people we knew real well. And this was such a new concept. The idea of fiber shed had just mm-hmm. sort of come come on the scene. And we said, let's just get together for a day in a meeting space, have a sandwich and talk about is there an interest in creating some sort of network and who would want to be involved? What what might a fiber community that has come together, what might be our priorities? You know, why would we come together? What would we work on if we did? So we sent out those 50 personal invitations and we got 50 RSVPs of which only 10 said they can't come. And that's only because they had to teach a class. Their mother had to go to the doctor, you know, very good. So we ended up with 40 people in a space for 30. We took turns using the chairs. <laughs> we cut the sandwiches in quarters instead of halves. <laughs> and it was in a setting like that with, you know, how they, they sometimes call flip chart paper butcher paper. Yes. Yep. Well, we were using the real thing. <laughs> the kind of brown paper that you crumple up and put in your box when you ship yarn. Mm-hmm. That's what I had. So I brought a roll of that and we ripped it and scotch taped it up on the wall. Like, what's your paper? And started writing ideas. And out of that very first meeting came several directives of which we are either have completed or are in the process of completing. And one of them was to form an actual nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And continue this and have members and gatherings and provide services to the members. Mm-hmm. Other two ideas were we had to get clean wool in our region. We couldn't, we just was no other solution to selling wool if it, we couldn't get it clean. And the third one was we needed professional scale marketing. When you say clean wool, are you talking about scouring? Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes. Uh-huh. So if you have a thousand pounds of wool, you can bail it and send it to chargers and you'll get your own wool back. If you have 50 pounds of wool Mm -hmm. and you want me to make yarn or roving with it, you can send it to me. Some mills will only take scoured wool. Other mills will only scour certain amounts of wool. So there was this gap. Mm -hmm. If you wanted an all New York product, it was very hard to accomplish that, especially if you didn't want to go all the way to yarn at a mill like ours. And so we identified clean fleece as a top priority and set out doing grant writing and fundraising. And this year, beginning of this year, we opened um, a 4,000 square foot facility in the Albany area uh, for scouring wool. That is amazing. Yeah. So is the idea of this facility mostly that it will serve folks in the Hudson Valley, or is this a resource for, is part of the idea that this will spread? Spread in several dimensions, yes. How I said earlier, our competition is not Zeilinger's or Bartlett. In fact, we wouldn't mind if another mill opened across the street. Uh, (laughs) Seriously, because Mm -hmm. we could share employees and resources No different than all my pin drafters are the same brand and all my spinners are the same brand. 
to all be local mills together, like at gas stations on the interstate. You don't get off at the interstate where there's only one gas station. You get off on the exit where there's four choices. Right. Um, so the same the same I- idea um, was scouring. There's really only one option for a thousand pounds or more in the U.S., and that's chargers. And that may still be. I mean, that is the best thing to do if you've got over a thousand pounds. You can't beat their price. But if you've got more than 50 and less than a thousand, you're in a tight spot. And that's where our facility is really making a difference. We have in our work plan for quarter four to begin a pretty systematic outreach to the nearby mills Mm -hmm. to make them aware of what we have and develop special pricing and really open this up across the whole Northeast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, we're still in our quarter three soft launch phase, which is Hudson Valley Textile Project members are able to bring their fiber. We're doing maybe lots, uh, 80 pounds to two or 300, that sort of range. But it's certainly our goal to expand our services to our region. And at the same time, we are active participants in a work group of Fibershed that brings together people from organizations like the Textile Project and some Fibershed affiliates in other parts of the country, brings us all together in this work group to talk about the issue of low-quality wool, mainly, and other fibers, and what are some of the markets. And so we've learned a lot about wool pellets, for example, and other options of what to do with your wool that is less than great. And one answer is to just get it clean and then it'll be pretty great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But wool, just greasy wool, is not very valuable. Another thing that we hope to put into place in another part of the building where clean fleeces that is we don't rent yet but would like Mm -hmm. to is an actual wool warehouse where we have a section dedicated to natural color and a section to down types and a section to long walls and so on. So that when we got an order, the first thing we had to do was not go drive around the farms looking for the fiber we needed, but having the fiber on hand right there to fill the order. You know, you were talking about how the mills in South Carolina were shutting down and the various evolutions. One of the things that has changed out here is that the agricultural schools, the, the A&M you know, universities, used to have more wool resources. So, for example, the University of Wyoming, what made me think of it is that they used to have a scouring train. And mm. if you were a wool producer locally, you know, somebody who had a flock of 50 or 80 sheep could scour their wool at the University of Wyoming wool train. But, you know, a, a piece of equipment broke and... It has never been fixed. Mm. So, yeah. They do have a really beautiful scouring line at Mountain Meadow hmm. in Buffalo, Wyoming, that they had received a federal grant to design and engineer working with a local machine shop there, um, had it fabricated. And um, it is really a, a beautiful thing. We are running a Kiwi scour that we bought from New Zealand mm-hmm. um, at the Hudson Valley Textile Project's clean fleece facility. And it is limited capacity. We are only going to be able to do about 500 pounds a week. 
which at this point is sufficient for member demands and others. But if we signed a contract with very many mills, that would be that. We'd have one day a week, you know, a day, two days a week for one mill and two days a week for another and two days for a third. And pretty soon you're running out of days of the week. So the good news is it's expandable. So if we find one is not sufficient, we can order a second and run them in parallel. One of the things I hear you talking about is, you know, you were talking about value-added agriculture. You're operating in the space between various kinds of producers. Do you think that this is something that consumers will recognize the brand and have visibility into, or is it more into helping other individual farms or yarn companies do their work better or have more capacity? It's going to take a lot of discussion to help a consumer understand that fiber that's traveled less miles and is putting more money in a farmer's pocket is preferred to another. A colleague of ours, Jeannie Carver, who is the founder of a group of farms and ranches called Shanico, Mm -hmm. named for a town near where her ranch is, the Imperial Stock Ranch in eastern Oregon, is grappling with the same question as it relates to the certified wool that she sells and that this group, the Shaniko group, sells. So there's nine or ten farms and ranches that have all made a pledge to sustainability and third-party verification of their practices. And they group that fiber together, send it to chargers, to be scoured and made into comb top, and then I can buy that comb top and blend it with things and or use it by itself. Uh, or there are mills that are selling to indie dyers yarn that they've spun, like kind of keeping stock from it. Mm-hmm. Knitting mills who are buying it to make um, yard goods of knitted fabric. So it's it's out there, and all of us agree this is a really important step. But Does that matter to the consumer? Mm -hmm. Does that whole story of third-party verification of soil and health practices on those ranches, if you're standing there in the yarn store and you're just trying to decide between making a green sweater and a blue sweater, (laughs) and the green sweater's yarn comes from Shanico Ranches, the blue sweater's yarn comes from other, Mm -hmm. but they're both wool. Mm -hmm. That's a tough one. In the end, you're gonna if you wanna if you like the color of the blue sweater, you're gonna get that, and and so I think it's helping consumers to understand what all happens in our industry, but whether anyone's ever gonna make a purchasing decision based on that and that alone, especially without point of sale contact with the miller or the farmer, probably not. We actually spoke with Jean, uh, Jeannie on a previous season oh. of the podcast, and her her work is so inspiring. And we actually went and looked for yarns for for Shanico yarns, and because most of what she, because what she's selling is selling to mills, you kind of have to know or search in the fine print to see that it's Shanico wool. But I do also see traceability being important. We met a, a mill in Yorkshire in the UK. Yeah, yeah. And they have something called Wool Trace. You can take a picture of a QR code on the label and the farm 
pops up. And it's very, very British. <laughs> it's like you can practically hear the Yorkshire accent and it's, but that sort of traceability is something that they're marketing as, as something that's, you know, one of the big features. Yeah, even the sheep say, bah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely seeing some interest coming around that in talking about where where the wool comes from and, and being able to follow it at every step. I think the Who Made My Clothes movement is also mm -hmm. part of that. When people begin to realize the true cost of fast fashion mm -hmm. and things like the tragic fire in Pakistan, it, 10 years already, a building collapse um, and fire. Uh, they, they really stop and think for a minute, do I really need another outfit just because I'm going to somebody's kid's birthday party this weekend? Why can't I wear the same thing I have? And then the next step, of course, becomes, well, gosh, if I'm only going to wear a couple of outfits the entire season, why don't I buy slightly better quality? And I, I do think we're slowly beginning to see a change. Now, you're not going to go to the mill and run a machine in a, a shirt made from locally sourced hemp and hand-processed organic cotton and rip it or whatever. No, that's you're not going to do that. You're still going to need these kind of garments for everyday workwear. But I do think people are beginning to understand from a fashion standpoint that a few key pieces that last indefinitely are a very worthwhile investment. I almost think that that goes double for craft yarn. I mean, I think you're you're probably making yarn for a wide variety of folks, but if I'm not only spending money on the yarn and wearing the, the piece for a long time, whether it's something woven or something knitted, you know, it, it can seem very expensive to spend another $50 on something, but that pales in comparison to the cost of my time that's going into it. So why not, you know, spend a little extra to make the whole process something I can feel good about? Right. And that's what you see at Rhinebeck or um, any fiber festival. People there saying, I am going to make a really original, one of a kind, very special thing. And finding the right yarn for that is very important. And this has an impact on, you mentioned the 18 people who work for you and all of the other folks who are working in one way or another in the American textile industry. Exactly. Labor here is every bit as much an issue as labor in other parts of the world. It's hard to get people to understand that this is an important career, a valuable career. Um, my son, who's a shop teacher, encounters that with the parents of his students. He has plenty of students who would love to take shop, who would like to go to work in the trades, and their parents who want them to be doctors and lawyers or something, and they just may not be college material, or they may be college material and want to work on textile machines and not on 3D printers. You know, there's there's work for everyone whatever your interest in in the textile industry. But we're really struggling to find help. And that's really starting to affect our ability to meet our customers' needs and dreams. If someone has to wait a year to get their yarn back, and that's just, that's not getting any better. 
It started in COVID with when we were forced closed for several months. Um, we kept working with a skeleton crew and developed ways that none of us would breathe on each other. But And then finally we had approved, we could call back people and had, uh, we mapped out on the floor everything that was six feet apart and so on. Um, but ever since then, so that's been two full years, we just can't get enough help to come in and run the machines. I watch This Old House TV, and they have done a great job of having a focus on bringing young people into the trades and really making that an important part of their programming. And it's true that that's not something that I see in the textile arena kind of across the board. I would think that you'd have to be somewhat flexible, though, because you'd, you're working with historic machinery but something could change at any time, right? I mean, there could be a new process, a new market. So there's kind of a combination of traditional skills and being willing to innovate. Um, no, there's definite innovations. Um, we just bought a Ramella small scale, like lab scale, Carter and Pindrafter because we're going to start processing our own hemp sliver. Oh, cool. Previously, we've been buying hemp sliver from Europe and blending it on one of our pin drafters with wool. But um, with New York having textile-grade hemp being grown by many farmers in many regions and such a demand for, especially in the machine knit and, and woven upholstery industries for hemp blend yarns, we, so we've been buying it and said, why don't we use what's, what's local? Mm-hmm. And so we've bought, bought these machines and wow, all the things we do with a, a wrench and a flashlight in our teeth on our current machines, you do with a computer with a little <laughs> push this button, push the F1 button and then select. Mm-hmm. No, we're used to get the wrench and then select, you know, it's very different. And on days when the computer doesn't work, it's good to know how to use the wrench. <laughs> <laughs> and to understand the concepts. So, for mm-hmm. example, the pressure of two rollers on the pin drafter needs to be adjusted depending on the thickness, density, and strength of the material we're pin drafting. And so we've learned a lot about tighter pressure on squishier things and less pressure on things that want to, you know. So we've got all these things we've learned and that's where you get consistent yarns and avoid slubbing and so on. Um, so the concept then applies when you go to the new pin drafter and have a computer screen in front of you for adjusting roller pressure. You still need to have known the concept of more when to put more pressure, when to put less pressure. But it's nice, really, to be able to just twist a knob and have more sure. or less pressure. Obviously, because most of the folks that I work with are are fiber artists, I've been asking you about, you know, yarns for handwork. But are you also supplying, you know, upholsters and and textile mills as well? Yes. Yes. In fact, that's becoming more and more a part of our, our business. And it's not necessarily the mill. It's a customer who wants milled things and who want to manage their supply chain. So they decide to come out with a line of beanies. And instead of just going to the knitting mill and asking the knitting mill to make them a line of beanies, they come to us and ask us to make a line of yarn to give to the knitting mill to make a line of beanies is how that's happening. 
And then with upholstery, we work sort of like Harris Tweed does on the Hebrides with a whole cluster of cottage weavers and some very talented studio weavers that have multiple looms and may have multiple employees, but are still small scale compared to like Pendleton. Mm-hmm. But they have the capabilities that rival Pendleton or that Pendleton's trying to imitate, really. I mean, outstanding weaving skills, abilities with color and texture. But they, too, have a barrier, and that is the fabric finishing. So -hmm. they can make one blanket at a time and cut it off the loom and wash it in their washing machine and stretch it on the picnic table and so on. But when it comes to making a bolt of 30 yards of cloth and finishing that as a continuous bolt, they aren't able with what they have in their home studios. What we saw when we went to the Outer Hebrides is that the cottage weavers at for Harris Tweed don't have finishing equipment either. Hmm. It's all located in a central spot. And everyone brings their, their, their 30 yards, and it's finished in... Again, very water-intensive process and also stretched on like a tenter frame and put through a dryer while being tented and comes out exact dimensions that are sought in the yard goods. And so that is another goal of the Hudson Valley Textile Project, to establish a fabric finishing facility in that same building where the, the scouring line is now because there's room there and the whole water and sewer situation is all worked out for fiber scouring, so why not scour uh, wovens there too? Mary Jean, as we're talking, the theme that I'm seeing is that consumers, whether they are finished good consumers or crafters, are getting more interested in where their fiber comes from, and all of it comes through a mill, or some other element of this Hudson Valley textile product, where as you were talking about value-added agriculture, you know, there there is no getting back to the farm without looking at what's in between. That's right. That's right. To lose sight of any piece of the supply chain, you fail to understand the whole story and why here, why now. Too often, the further away from the consumer you get, the less understanding there is of who made my product. But I think efforts, the QR code on mm-hmm. on a skein of yarn that enables you to go to a website and see the photo mm-hmm. of Carol and Tom Foster standing there with their flock of beautiful Wensleydales and to see Barb and Tahira, the, some of the girls that work for me, standing at their machines running that fiber through it. And in, in that case, also seeing Ann Hansen at Knitspot, who took that Wensleydale and went from the Foster Sheep Farm to having it scoured, to having Barb pin draft it and Tahara spin it, to then presenting that to her customer. She, too, she's like the conductor on their train. She's their tour guide. And without her, they still, we could spin all day. We mm-hmm. could go by Wensleydale and Barb and Tahira could pin draft it and spin it, <laughs> but the consumer would still not be introduced to the characteristics of that breed without a, a tour guide. 
But that tour guide and in other successful instances, like we spin a lot for the Woolly Thistle, mm-hmm. um, which is an online yarn shop. Um, we spin a sock yarn to Corrine's exact specifications. Mm-hmm. It's the only yarn that she carries that is made for her. Everything else is a brand's idea of what the yarn should be. And so she, like Anne, is functioning as this conductor, this orchestrator of exactly what she wants and why she wants it, which is a Dorset intense sock yarn. So it's a non-nylon sock yarn that can be used in color work projects or shawls. You don't have to just do socks or sweaters, uh, but she has orchestrated this whole thing. So the difference is it didn't go through a couple of distributors, warehouses, and branding before it ever got to the LYS. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing some very successful Brooklyn General Stores, another one that wants their own brand and knows what they want and is communicating about that. But we're all able to make a living that way because there's just the farmer the mill, perhaps a dye house, and then the the final distributor. Mm-hmm. And we've cut out enough people along the way that everyone can make a living. Well, Mary Jean, I can't wait to come by your booth, your, <laughs> your bat and kill booth at Rhinebeck, and see what kinds of goodies are coming in and out of there. So thank you so much for taking the time. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Mary Jean and I talked some more about farms, fiber, and mills, and what a knitter should look for at a fiber festival. We talked about the yarns she'd always buy, never buy, what she'd knit with them, and how she'd approach a fiber festival. That conversation is a subscriber exclusive at farmfiberknits.com, where we celebrate the journey from the field to the finished project. Thanks to Trinway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.